I am not above any type of job. I can get my hands dirty. And if it's for $15 an hour or less, that's fine. Hello, everybody. It's Emran, and welcome to episode one of the Mind Your Own Business podcast. I'll be your host from now until forever, Emran Pilati, and I'm excited about our very first one. Uh, I've been a podcast host now for about five years, but this is my very first time in years launching my own podcast, and I'm excited about episode one. Ryan Chang, we talk about the business of alternative investing. In particular, Ryan's going to spend some time speaking on the $1.6 million sale that he did over a pair of shoes through the Sotheby's auctions. Not only that, but we talk about alternative investments like NFTs and crypto, and we talk about art, we talk about sports cards, all the different genres of investing that aren't the traditional thought of like a real estate or a stock. Pretty cool stuff. I'm glad to launch this first podcast with my friend Ryan Chang. Here comes the music. Stay tuned as we start Mind Your Own Business. Hello, everybody. Emron Pilati for the very first episode ever of the Mind Your Own Business podcast, MYOB. Um, I'm going to be your host from now until forever. And I'm really happy that the very first podcast that we're going to record under this is with my friend, the entrepreneur, the world record holder for the highest price shoe sale ever in history, as well as a dear friend and uh, one of the most successful business people I know, Mr. Ryan Chang. Ryan, what's up? Thank you for joining honor and a privilege man congratulations <laughs> on la- launching a new pod this is Thanks. exciting you know I, I i make a joke that we end up with uh, anywhere from three to eight people on any pod uh, listening audience so i'm sure that the eight of them will be stimulated by this conversation which i'm happy about um <laughs> <laughs> hey this is your second pod ever right you had a very successful pod with a very successful uh entrepreneur interview called smart humans yeah, I did Smart Humans with Slava Rubin. That was about three or four months ago, I believe. And yeah, you're my second. You're my second. Jeez, couldn't even be the first. Let's talk about getting you, like, why do we even want you on this podcast? Why did I even want this? It's funny because Jessica, my wife, that everybody knows, and I were kind of in the car sourcing ideas as to what we want to talk about. And nothing sparks conversation well, there's two things here. Number one, you have a clothing line unofficially at my house. We've called it forever the same thing. They're called Chang Pants or Chang Shorts. Now, the reason why that's funny is because literally every day I wear sweatpants or sweatpant shorts. And we call them Chang Pants or Chang Shorts. Like literally I say to Jessica, hey, can you grab me some Chang Pants or some Chang Shorts? And the reason why, and you're laughing, because bro, all you wear Every day, all day, no matter where you're going, are sweatpants or sweat or sweat shorts. Okay, I want to get to that level uh, of net worth <laughs> where I don't give a shit about what people think about me because I can wear whatever I want to wear. You've done that. You don't wear, own a watch because you don't have anywhere to be at a certain time except for a podcast. Like you live a lifestyle that is of uh, 
hard work that allows you to be able to call your own shots. And that's why I wanted you on this podcast because, and I'm wearing my chain shorts as we speak. So nothing more comfortable than that. But <laughs> another thing that's inspiring, and I promise I'll let you talk here in a second, is your story of your rise to building your company, Ivy Consulting, which has been one of the most successful uh, tutoring and uh, e-learning and in-person learning companies I could think of. So start with the basics. Tell us about where you grew up and how you started building this company uh, from scratch. <laughs> well, first of all, oh man, that's hilarious that you guys wear sweatpants around the house. That is my go-to. Simone Hayset, that's the name. Uh, she's my partner, as you, as you know, you've met her many times. But that is sort of, I don't know. I have decision fatigue, I guess. And it just, it makes me calm. It makes me happy to know that I'm not going to have to waste any time selecting an outfit. It's and, like, it's like, Ryan, let me guess, a uh, white shirt, t-shirt, uh, black sweatpants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's either, it. yeah, it's either the Oreo or it's the white on white. And honestly, it works. It works for the gym. It works for going out. It works for going to bed. It works <laughs> for, you know, all occasions right now. If we had video, you would see that it works for podcasts too. <laughs> All right, tell me about tell me about the kid on the bike. Let's start with that. Oh, okay. The kid on the bike would be me. And so I grew up in a suburban town called Cranberry, New Jersey. I was a baseball card collector. And this is one of those towns where you can ride your bike out and not feel threatened or in harm's way. And the parents can just tell you what time is dinner and you'll just be home. And so I used to ride around with some of my sports cards. And I'd stop at my friends' houses and we would trade and sometimes we would buy, we would sell. And it was just, uh, it was a fun hobby. And we made new friends that way. We learned about basic economics without even knowing that we were learning about economics. And um, yeah, I think it was something I did between the ages of like six and nine. Uh, I had older cousins who lived down the block from me who also collected sports cars and got me into the New York Mets at a young age. And so, yeah, I played some Little League baseball, collected some Daryl Strawberry, and, you know, occasionally we bought and sold cards, my brother and I. So you started the entrepreneurial spirit similar to the way I did as a little kid, but you, what college did you go to? I went to Columbia in New York City. Columbia, New York City. And then yeah. did you start your consulting and tutoring business uh, before or after college? Right after college, I've actually never had, outside of college, or I mean, after college, I've never had a job other than my own company. I, I don't know what it's like to work in the office setting. I don't know what it's like to interview for jobs or <laughs> write a resume or, I don't know, have a hand hunter, things like that. It's one of the things I'm most jealous about, actually. I don't know what office dynamics are. I don't have work friends, right? I've never had that. And so that's something that I look forward to greatly is when I do decide to no longer run my company, I, I kind of, I'm so eagerly anticipating that I want to be somebody's, I want to be somebody's troll, right? You tell me what to do. I don't want to have any responsibility for obtaining new business or innovating or um, coming up with strategy. I just want to do exactly what you tell me to do right. and not have to think about <laughs> anything. You are, you are trolling me right now because there's no, no way in hell that you would want that. Like, 
that you know uh, it, it would be more of a social experiment for me yeah, i guess I was gonna say, there you go like there's a scene in i think it's called that kevin spacey movie american beauty and yeah. he pulls up and it's his wife who's ordering burger and fries from him and he works at smiley burger or something and i loved what he said during the interview he said um, they're telling him how overqualified he is for the job and the guy's like listen man i want as little responsibility as possible <laughs> and that's kind of at where i am now like i love being a stay-at-home dad and yeah. you know my daughter is 20 months old now i have another daughter on the way in january and being a stay-at-home dad and just having the experience of shaping my entire calendar my work life my social life around what my daughter needs it's the best thing um I think her and I are super, super tight. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah. It's bothersome, I guess, to a small extent when she won't let go of me or only I can do this or only I can put her to bed, daddy only. But honestly, it's like I would trade it for nothing in the world. It's so strange. I mean, I run Parent Corner on my previous podcast and I would ask people about being a parent and they give you all the insights and pull back the curtain and then obviously Beckett's born and it's like, Oh, this is the shit you were talking about. I get you now. Oh, like, yeah. I get it where you're like yeah. infinitely in love with a person to where you're like, I'm in charge of your well being forever. And mm -hmm. uh, I get it now. So dude, nobody understands that better than a parent. And, and now that me and Jessica are parents, uh, we're, we definitely know what you and Simone are going through. Um, So yeah, let's, let's get to that part where Ivy consulting. So give me the, Let's back up for a second. Give me what Ivy Consulting looks like right at the moment. And then let's lead into that. Because I think sure. seeing a multi-million dollar business from the beginning and what it turns into, we can actually see what its finished version looks like at the moment. What's yeah. Ivy Consulting consist of? What do you guys do? And, and how big is it right now? Sure. So what we do is we are one-on-one -on -one educators. We offer private tutoring services. K through college, sometimes graduate school. We coach students academically. We operate as mentors. We do college counseling, SAT tests, ACT tests, anything having to do with raising your grades or being competitive when you want to apply anywhere to further your learning. Right now we have about 40 students and staff of somewhere between eight and 12, full-time, part-time. Um, we topped out at about 100, 20, I want, I want to say 120 students about seven or eight years ago. I made some life changes. I decided to start some other ventures and 40 students, I believe is a perfect number for me to be as involved as I want to be because I teach 10 to 12 of them myself. And I've always said, you know, the time that I can't respond immediately or take a parent's call right away is the time when my company is too big. And so um, we thought that 40 is a good number and it just hums along. You know, we have no sort of growth plans. We have no sort of uh, let's do international and get a, a website going or a TV show or let's do social stuff, uh, web three and none of that. We do nuts and bolts one-on-one, -on -one, completely word of mouth. I'm in your home and you're, you're, student is getting the results they want, want to get, they're maximizing, and hopefully we can also operate as good mentors along the way. 
uh, you know, you, th this is the this was the first venture of yours that started the process of you being able to amass your net worth. We're not going to share what your net worth is. You're an incredibly private person. In fact, uh, I wanted to make sure that we <laughs> kind of outlaid what we were going to talk about before we talked about it, just to make sure of that. But let's just say that you're doing okay. Um, you're doing okay, and I, a lot I, of it. Yeah, go I ahead. got I got the sweatpants at TJ Maxx. <laughs> Right, and I wore them like four or five straight days, and occasionally, occasions. So you're just outed yourself as a gross person. I got you. I, I hear you, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, so let's back up. So to build a business like that, when somebody's looking at a multi-million dollar company, and you're looking at it, like, wow, I must have done a lot of legwork and building, and you probably had to hire a bunch of people, a lot of assembly of it. You started well, with Brian, just you, nobody else. And then you started adding more people to the mix. When you first started, what was the idea of building the company and how did you go about it? To be honest, I started tutoring one-on-one -on -one when I was in college. I used to do some work study stuff to pay off my bills. And, uh, you know, New York City was expensive as 18-year-old, 22-year-old. Those were... That's when I was in college. And so I started tutoring and I had my bike. I would ride around to Harlem, Upper West Side, Upper East Side. And I would make, you know, $12 an hour, 15 bucks an hour. And I would tutor anything that a student wanted me to do. And very quickly, I was getting referred all over the place. And so by the time I graduated, I had something like 25 students was some unmanageable number. And I needed to hire and I needed to team up with some people so they can do some of the tutoring with me. But I was always very, very passionate about the teaching itself. I loved the one-on-one -on -one component of it. I loved getting maximal results because in that sort of environment, you can maximize, you can customize. I love when students learn and they begin to enjoy it. And I think they can tell that I enjoy my job too. And so even if it's something mind-numbing, something we all hate, I don't know, name something, geometry. It <laughs> is fun. And then all of a sudden, this person actually wants to see their tutor more. And as you know, as a parent, as a parent myself, there are other things. There are worse things that your son or daughter could ask you to buy them. There are worse things than tutoring lessons. And if they're and if they're paying for that, you want to give them that knowledge. I I one of the things I wanted to make sure I had in my notes to write down and Obviously, today's prices are customizable for each scenario, so there's no need to get into that. But do you remember your first price jump when you went from the 12 bucks an hour to 10 bucks an hour to like, maybe I should charge more? Do you remember that price jump and what that jump was for you? I actually do. I made a massive jump from 15 bucks to 18 bucks. And okay, well, let's talk about that. That's a 20% increase in your pricing. And the reason why is because our audience, our eight people that are listening are probably in real estate or whatever. And they're, and they're trying to figure out how do I work less hours or more efficiently? And right. a lot of that has to come in with raising your price. And there's a fear factor of if I go too high, then people are going to bounce me and they'll go with somebody cheaper. But right. we all successful businesses go through that adaptation phase of we're going to increase the price and right. cross the fingers and hope people stick around with us. When you made yeah. that conscious decision for 15 to 18 bucks an hour, that 20% increase, what caused it? And what were you ready for 
in a, in a quote unquote backlash or maybe even a loss of business? Well, my honestly schedule just couldn't handle it. I just had too many students and I needed to find a, I guess, diplomatic way to garner a little bit less business and have it come in a little less quickly. And I thought that that might do the, do, do the thing, but you know, I, at the end of the day, I think that New York is such a city of specialists that when a family finds somebody like nannies, for example, you know, we're looking for nannies right now, or if you find a good plumber, if you find your acupuncturist, there's almost nothing that could make you switch away from that person, let alone a $3 an hour price jump. Right. Yeah. And so this is me at like 23 years old thinking, oh my God, I might lose half of my business because I'm doing such a big jump, 20%. But it's kind of nothing because one, 15 to 18, for someone to come all the way to your house and teach your kid, which to me, I am also thinking about now as a parent, is there's also a childcare component to it, right? Like that's another two hours that you don't have to look after your child. And not only do you not have to look after your child, they're getting that babysitting, they're also being educated along the way. So you know, I, I think that's personally, I'm looking into private tutoring for my daughter now too. And if I could find somebody for $18 an hour, like, please uh, like sign me up. But yeah, I did it because there was an overflow of demand and I needed to curtail it. I needed to slow it down. That's the part where I think so many businesses are at a, at a crossroads, it's particularly realtors. Obviously I've worked with realtors for the last 20 years. You've been investing in real estate for a long time as well. So you know how that works. In fact, you have a very funny I see. I think it's funny now, uh, but you were very serious about it. And I think you still are serious about it, about how realtors or agents should be paid based on a tiered system of what they're able to bring to the table rather than it just being a percentage against the sales price. So if they went over, I remember this a while back, Ryan, I don't know if you remember it, but it was something like, if you get me over, this is what you should get if you're just a dodo with a contract. This is what my house is worth. But if you were able to go over this and you put the work in to help me get more, then you deserve X percentage, much more than what you would have regularly gotten paid. Do you remember saying that to me? It was a modification of how you believe they should go. Do I remember saying that? I love, I love that you remember me saying that because I harp on this idea all the time. <laughs> Whether I'm selling shoes or cards or real estate these days, I feel like I'm doing some kind of repetition of this to whoever I'm working with. Like, for example, I'm doing an insurance claim right now and the insurance adjuster, we have that sort of contract because I do believe that a house, a property, or any kind of asset has some sort of intrinsic level of worth. Like if, if your house comes at $500,000, the first 400, like you said, a dodo should be able to get that yeah. first one. Yeah. And I, and I do believe that the broker on the sell side shouldn't get anything for selling a house for 400,000. But I know all the brokers are hitting me right now, but I strongly believe that if you outperform that $500,000 comp, you should get significantly more than 6%. And if you are for some reason, such a amazing broker that you could sell that house for 600, 700, 800,000, I think you're starting to talk about, you should get 50% commissions. Like there should be such an incentive-laden structure such that every single transaction, that person's trying to hit a home run, right? And I think it would create a different set of incentives 
um, there would be so much focus on passing those thresholds, right? Instead of, oh, I got an exclusive listing and this is just money in the bank. I'm going to mm-hmm. sell it. You know, anyway, just my, just my personal opinion. But um, I also, I understand that not all properties and people work like that, right? Like from, if I was a real estate broker, I'd only want, you know, two or three listings. And for those two or three listings, I would try to hit some kind of stratospheric price. You've done that with your investments and what you're willing to share is up to you. Let's go to the real estate side because you took a lot of your money that you earned through your tutoring and consulting business into many different investments. One of the key ones has been real estate for many years. You've bought and sold multi-million dollar properties there in the New York area. You've invested into uh, various types of real estate uh, some of these ventures, when you look into them, particularly in real estate, since real estate is still a sexy conversation, even with the market being what it is, uh, when you look into an investment aspect of things, what, what are some of the components that you look for in order for you to say, this is one that I'm willing to put some big bucks into to make the investment? So if you want to talk numbers, that's great. I know that you, public record can show some of your purchases if they dig deep enough, but um, speak to that. Like, What do you look for in your real estate investment? Are we holding it? Are you trying to flip it? What's the game plan for you in most cases? The driving thing for me is always my curiosity and passion for the asset at hand. I started real estate because I love design. I love community building. I love renovation. I love the nitty gritty aspects of it. I love understanding tongue and groove flooring. I love understanding French drains in certain elevations or excavating so that your kitchen or cellar doesn't have a seven foot ceiling because that's how they built those houses in the old days. I love finding a neighborhood. I do a lot of my work in Brooklyn and in Brooklyn Heights. I love finding a neighborhood that I feel is reinventing itself or has something special that other neighborhoods don't have. And so I'm highly deeply involved in every single one of my investments. I'm, I'm the anti sort of give your money to a PM and pay them your 20% and just show me statements at the end of the day. I'm really insistent on learning about all that my money is doing and every aspect of an investment, I try my best to understand. I'm the guy when he goes to the dentist, I just have to have a really frank conversation. So you're going to yank my tooth out (laughs) of the bone now and I should anticipate blood overflowing out of my mouth, onto my cheek. I'll see it in the mirror and I'll feel it on my neck. I need to have all of that. under the, And it's molar number 15 and you're using this size drill and you're injecting me and you're spinning this blood. It's kind of like a PRP uh, process. And I, I just need it all. I need the information because it's sort of like my curiosity for processes. And you know, it's a human being. How does this human being spend his time every day? It's fascinating to me. He does root canals over and over and over and over all day. That's what he does. And so I just want to know about it from him. Uh, the curiosity standpoint, you just like, show me the, show me behind the curtain. What, what are you about to do? Exactly. So, so here's an example. Well, you are a guy. It's so funny. Cause I remember you jackhammering. I think it was brick in the back of your Brooklyn Heights investment house that you actually bought for yourself to live in. You were jackhammering the brick in the backyard there 
right? Am I wrong? Yeah, yeah, I was. And I'm like, was. what are you, what are you doing, dude? Like that you can hire people to do this, but yet you're hands on with it. But then, as I got to know you better as a friend and got to spend more time with you, I was like, this dude's hands on on everything, on everything. And why do you think so many people, investors in particular, are so like just set it and forget it, call me when it, and then they go, well, it didn't work out, or I don't know what happened, or the guy never calls me back in regarding my investment. Why do so many people want that cut the check and be done with it versus actually putting the sweat equity to to help that asset or that investment go forward and, and gain um, value? I don't know. I can't speak to sort of other people's personality types with that. I think maybe they don't have the time to do it. Um, I don't know. I guess it's a certain style where maybe they think they're paying somebody 20%, so it should be entirely up to them. You know, why is this my problem sort of thing? But for me, it's I'm investing this money. And if I also invest my time, I can actually create a new expertise for myself, right? And I find that if you're invested academically and passionately, passionately and on a personal level, if you're out there, Jack Henry, then more and more, or I should say less and less over time, there'll be fewer and fewer ways for you to find yourself in bad deals with like yeah. a bad or a bad roofer. Right. And so we had a pooling problem in my backyard. We haven't had any pooling problems in my backyard anymore. Right. I don't have to call this guy every single time I see puddles forming. And so I think it's just, you know, it's so corny, but that knowledge is your best asset. And you can always decide what you want to do with your time. You can definitely decide what you want to do with your money. But if you put the two together, you're going to come out three or four years from now with a new, new specialty. It's, it's funny because what I tell people when I'm, teaching and consulting brokers for the last 20 years. One thing I say is, you know, if you didn't end up doing so many people are like, I just do it myself because I don't want to outsource it. I'm a control freak or whatever that be. And I'm like, if you're doing a $15 an hour job, filling a flyer box, putting a lockbox on the property, digging a hole to put a sign in the yard, you just hired yourself for 15 bucks an hour. You know, That's if, true. Okay. But you could have had somebody jackhammer that backyard for 20 bucks an hour. Okay, maybe more in New York, but you decided to do it, but you look at it from the side of, I'm investing in the knowledge aspect of it to make sure that I know what's happening. So that way on next investment opportunities or whatever happens, and I have to worry about stuff that needs to be jackhammered. I know exactly what needs to be done. So that way I can evaluate the person that I hire, whether or not they're going to be competent enough for me to be able to hire. Whereas if you just blindly cut a check and say, take care of it, like many people do, you don't know if somebody's good or bad. Yeah, I mean, the most pessimistic view on that, I think, is what you just said. There are going to be people out there trying to scam you, and they're going to try to do a bad job or bill you too much. I, I am not effective. I think that's new to me now. Of I want to say I can get my hands dirty. Harder. And right? if it's right? $15 an hour or less, that's fine. A problem because Dad just calls somebody and writes a check. I'm, I'm not a bug, no. right? I mean, I think the key lesson that I've had to learn despite how much success you have or think you might have, there's got to be no ego, ego involved whatsoever. And that starts from raising your hand and saying, I don't know how to do that. I don't know shit about this. Mm -hmm. I'm here to learn first, right? And I think there was a conversation you and I had in Las Vegas years ago. And I asked you something like, no, I don't understand why the contractors I deal with, they have a hard time simply saying, I don't know how to do that. 
right? They kind of rather tell you, I got it covered. Or even even worse, use you to learn on the fly, right? Oh. While, while they're billing you. And so I think there's this kind of culture where people just think, unfortunately, that their skill sets or their experience might be a little bit more than it actually is. But I'm on the other end of that. I love to underpromise. You know, I can't get your kid into any college. You still want to hire me? Your friends got into XYZ, but I'm not promising you a damn thing. All I can promise you probably is that your kid won't fail out of school. If you're game, you're game. Wow. And, and that's the uh, money back guarantee that so many people try to offer when they don't have the ability to deliver on that. You know, I, I think about, I think about real estate and how many people get in and I've had everybody from, man, I can't wait. I got the gift of gab. I'm going to kick ass as soon as I get into it to, I don't know shit. And I really hope that somebody mentors me. So I've had both aspects of it. And I've seen, I'm talking about tens of thousands of people in and out of the real estate industry. And mm -hmm. the part that just cracks me up about this is they expect to take a test, pass it with a 70% pass rate in California. It's 70% is all you have to hit at the test. Nobody mm -hmm. goes above that because once they hit the 70%, once they answer 105 of the 150 questions right, they mm -hmm. stop scoring. You're just, it's, it's pass fail. And they want to earn money significant money within six months of getting their license like oh that you know they they didn't have me leads they didn't do this they didn't do that mm -hmm. but yet people like you that went to columbia university people that went to uh you know college or universities that have tons of debt now they've got to do years of work to get to pay back their educational costs as well as earn the right to that. And for some reason in the real estate industry in particular, people think I'm just going to microwave this shit and I'll be fine. Right? Like I'll, I'm going to get paid tens of thousands of dollars each time I close a deal. And I should be, the broker should be kissing my ass that I'm actually going to take their lead that they worked for in order for me to be able to give them the blessing of me being able to represent them uh, with my guinea pig on the fly. I'm going to charge somebody for the work that I'm learning off of them. Like it's one of those industries that drive me nuts. Because of how how um, entitled some of these people are that are coming into the business, you know, I they're in it for the wrong reason. They're in it for the dollar signs, and I think real estate really attracts people. But I would say to homeowners and people who have substantial assets, five hundred thousand dollar house, multi million dollar house, man, are you really gonna just sign this over to somebody and trust that they're gonna do your protect your best interests? At, from start to finish, or should you educate yourself on what's probably your most valuable asset, how it works, what this person is going to do, how he's going to do it. And, you know, I, I just don't see it as even close, right? Like as for entitlement, oh man, this is my favorite line in that movie is, I need the Glenn Gary leads, right? Give me the Glenn. <laughs> you don't Come deserve on. the Glenn Gary leads, Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> You, you don't know what to I need do you. if you receive them. <laughs> I need you to produce for me when you're comfortable, when you're uncomfortable, when you're tired, when you're not tired. Glengarry leads are not, right? Like there's always a max out. There's always a maximum effort, maximum productivity point. And I think that's the, that's the one thing I learned so much from my, from my dad. He is a super humble guy, immigrant, 
never made a huge amount of money, saved every penny, set a great example for my brother and I. And it was always everything he did, tried his damn hardest, right? He's weeding the garden. He's repaving the drive, driveway. He's cutting the lawn. I'm going to cut the best goddamn lawn you've ever seen. That's going to be today. <laughs> then next week, I'm, you know, I'm going to weed the fucking hell out of this garden patch. You know, and I think if you just apply that mentality, you know, there's always room for levity and, you know, screwing around and, you know, but when it's time to get serious, you, you have that and you're built that way. And that takes years and years of conditioning versus the entitlement that you see a lot of these kids. And I'm you know, trying my best that my daughter doesn't turn out this way. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, distractions in New York City. But so long as you're trying your hardest, man, even if you don't succeed, well, you know, you did your best and you move on, right? What, what did your dad do? Just, I want to spend a little segment on your family real quick. What did your yeah. dad, what did your dad do when you said that he worked hard? He was an immigrant. What did, what did he do? He started out as an inspector. And I think that was conveyor belt, manual labor stuff. Just mm -hmm. seeing rockets or parts or mechanical parts worked and were built in the correct way. And then he had a second job in the evening. I don't remember what that was. My mom also had two jobs. She was an accountant and also a part-time real estate agent. She also went to night school to get uh, CPA license and you know real estate licenses. And so I was just around a lot of people that worked all the time. And they knew that lives depended on it. And my brother and I, thankfully, were able to go to college and were, you know, had a roof over our heads and just knew that my parents were making sacrifices out there. It was all for the better of the family. Like, I, I kind of, you know, I know that it's cultural. I don't love when people try so focus too much on finding a profession that they love, right? Or I really need to be super passionate about what I'm doing. There's a level, right? Listen, I'll tell you what I'm super passionate about. I'd love to be the point guard for the New York Knicks. And unless I'm the point guard at, of New York Knicks, how would I just, you know, sit back and don't do anything until Dolan decides to give me that job, right? I mean, there's a degree, right? Like, there are certain things that you have to do. And I think with my daughters coming up, I want to set the right example for them. And most of the time, you're not going to get to choose what it is that you do. But you learn to love it and you have to adjust that value system. And I think my partner, Simone, is somebody who has made me or helped make me realize that adjusting your mindset and your value system is already half the battle. I used to just have one plate, one bowl, one spoon, one fork, and that was it. And my fridge was almost constantly empty. Whatever it was, I was eating cereal or I don't care what it was I was eating, I was using the same bowl. And you know, when we started living together and it came to, she's a great cook. And so she uses a lot more stuff than I do. And so when it came to organizing the kitchen or making things, you know, putting them in a bad, uh, right spot again, this is a completely new science to me. I was like, oh my God, like, how come I, I don't even want to uh, spend more energy thinking about what I'm going to wear today? Why do I have to spend more energy memorizing where to put the, the bowls at, right? Like, I just have one bowl and one fork. So specifically to avoid the fact uh, I don't need to spend more energy locating these items, but you change your value system. You say, you know, this is something that's super meaningful to her. She gets comfort and joy and passion out of cooking. And I certainly love eating the food. And so it comes with the territory and you, and you find yourself at midnight when your daughter's asleep between 12 and one, you clean the kitchen every single night from 12 to one. That's what I do. I'm like, you know what? 
I love cleaning this kitchen. Damn, you know what? Because I know at seven o'clock in the morning when we come back in here and my daughter comes to eat breakfast, it's going to be clean for her. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. And then when I clean that kitchen, I'm thinking about my dad. I'm going to clean the best damn kitchen I've ever cleaned in my life. <laughs> the same way he mowed that lawn. Best damn lawn. <laughs> so, so now, I mean, your brother's successful too. He is uh, in the medical industry. So he's, uh, you share whatever you want to share with him. But the two of you, you know, you both have had success. You both do really well. When your dad and mom step in to spend time with their grandchild and grandchildren soon, there must be a sense of like pride and we did our we did right by our children. You know, we 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 put the sacrifices out. I'm standing in a massive, beautiful home that my my son has earned through the hard work that you put in. Like they must share some of that joy with you. Because I know that there was a significant portion of you that wanted to do it for them too. Yeah, you know, I think when you see your parents make the kind of sacrifices that my parents have done for my brother and I, you can't help but every single day realize that you wouldn't be here without standing on their shoulders, right? It's a sacrifice of an entire generation to come here. And, you know, they came from Taiwan. And, of course, they didn't want to grow up or raise families in communist time. So they came over here. And just what they did, what they toiled, what, how little they actually enjoyed their jobs, right? And the little amount of time that they got, actually got to spend with my brother and I, they both commuted one and a half hours each way to their jobs and often worked weekends. And so then I just think about like, man, I'm not going to blow this opportunity, right? Like, look at all they've done. And I'm not beholden to it. It's not a debt obligation. It's not so, that sort of thing. They do it happily. They've always done it happily. It's the sort of thing where there's not enough food. Uh, they easily, they'll just go hungry and let me and my brother eat more, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of just the cultural value system that I think it's, it's in my blood. It just runs through my veins. And you know, every time I succeed at something, I, I love that they're part of it. I love that I can trace it back to value systems that they've taught me. And, you know, sometimes it's hilarious because they don't even, they don't get it half the time. You're like, what are you doing? You're selling sneakers. Like who the hell would want to buy your old shoes? You know, somebody did, somebody yeah. did. Like, how much did you, you pay a thousand dollars for these sneakers? What's wrong with you? Right. What? And so <laughs> the vision is not always aligned, but um, at the end of the day, I think, one of the biggest successes of my life is showing my parents, convincing them that they got to trust me. Like, just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it's going to be wrong. Right. And earning that trust in them has been one of the greatest successes. I think personally, just knowing that I could be up to something completely odd. And now it's more like, Hmm, that seems so freaking weird (laughs) and strange to me, but because Ryan's doing it, I trust it. Yeah, you know, the track record allows you them to put the faith that you're gonna it's gonna turn out just fine. Yeah. yeah. All right. And so I wanna I wanna kind of go through some things, Ryan. So your investment portfolios are wide. You've earned income through Ivy Consulting, you've put money away, you've put some smart investments into real estate, but then you started doing alt investing, things like sports cards, back to the roots. Uh, I'm, I'm back in it too. You and I are heavy in conversation every d- day about it one way or another. Uh, sneakers, Broadway plays, 
all kinds of weird shit to other people, but you look at it as investment opportunities. What are some of the other ones that I haven't named that you've invested in that you've, whether it's successful or not, just, I want people to know how diverse some of your stuff is. Sure, man. Well, first of all, I blame you entirely for the sports card stuff. And you You're know, we were, geez, man, <laughs> like for, for a moment there during the pandemic, especially it was a huge reprieve. It was just like diving back into my youth and you know how it is with me. I asked you how many questions every single day, how many conversations, <laughs> like pick your brain over and over. Like the amount of knowledge I must have consumed during the pandemic about how this industry has changed so much. Yeah. to me after taking a 30 year hiatus from it. Yeah. And so that was a ton of fun and other things. Yeah. I did Broadway for a while and real estate, crypto venture, sports cards, sneakers, and my own businesses. Yeah. Um, Applied Arts is the sneaker company with the mission of uh, bringing these urban art forms that historically get a delay in legitimacy, right? The Basquiat's, the graffiti artists, those people who came up in that era but didn't see their success until they passed. You always find that happen with urban artists and whether it's a socioeconomic or race thing, you know, people talk endlessly about that. But one of my missions with Applied Arts was to give that sort of culture its shine. And, you know, luckily we've been able to team up with some big art houses like Sotheby's and, you know, make some big sales. And I think that train is not going to derail. You know, we've been on that for three or four years and it seems to just be getting stronger and stronger. Every time I look up and I see another sneaker sale, I'm like, wow. This is uh, this is really just like the second inning. Yeah, no kidding. So when you think about baseball cards, particularly like a company like Topps, they've been around since 1950s. Uh, Leaf was around right before that. And then you go into Gaudi with all the, the play ball and all that stuff. I'm talking, I'm probably talking about stuff. People are like, what the hell are you talking about? But the point of it is, is the baseball card industry has been around for a hundred plus years. Uh, it has its ebbs and flows, but it's always worth a little bit more today than it was yesterday. As particularly with the, with the vintage stuff as it continues. Now, the sneaker game, the one that you got your notoriety for in the last two years has exploded. There's two, yeah. there's a bunch of different ways. One of the particular ones is StockX. It's a website that authenticates uh, rare shoes. You are a big player on that, both as in a purchasing world and a sales world. Do you still hold the high sale for shoe sale on StockX? I think I do. And if I don't, then it was recently eclipsed. It's a SB Dunk, Nike Paris SB Dunk. Yeah. That was the one that you sold at the time? Yeah, I sold it at the time. But that shoe has sold for now multiples of that number off of StockX. Okay. So StockX yeah, I don't follow the stock. I don't follow the stock. Uh, I don't follow the shoe game too much, but yeah. I do know that like that's seeing upwards of close to ninety or a hundred thousand a shoe for the pair, right? Yeah, I think the most recent sale was something like one hundred and ten, yep. and you know StockX focuses primarily on five hundred dollars transactions, like three to five hundred dollars, something around that range. That's what I mean. So yeah, when you see a, a shoe sell for, I think I sold my pairs back then for about fifty two thousand mm-hmm. on StockX. It, I, it, Good for them, right? They are moving into that area and they are getting, you know, printing sales for that sort of price point, which is amazing. I think that when people look at alternative investments, they're a little bit scared to jump into crypto, which is, by the way, understandable over the last damn six months. But 
alternative investments, sports cards, et cetera. They feel like uh, the people that I talk to, they go, you sell sports cards? Like, yeah, bro, I do. And they're like, well, is it, do people still buy that? Like I just sold a card yesterday, single card for $10,000. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. Who the hell would buy it? The guy that bought it for, that gave me $10,000. What does it matter? It's kind of like saying, well, who would eat the that pierogi? Well, the yeah. guy that wanted the pierogi, he bought it. Yeah. Just there's a buyer for something. No matter no matter what you think, there's somebody on the other side of it that wants that and is willing to pay for it. No matter what you personally think of that, if it doesn't float your boat, that's fine. Um, when you started this shoe aspect as an alternative investment, um, you 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 started getting involved in this. And give me the lineage of the Yeezys, which for the audience to know about these particular shoes, the ones that you closed on Sotheby's for $1.8 million, the highest price shoe shoes, shoe pair ever sold in history. Give me the lineage of how you got to own it and then where it came to the time to sell it. Sure, sure. So I've been collecting shoes for north of 10 years now. And it was one of the shoes I brought into my collection about five, six years ago. I loved the history of the pair. It was the moment that Kanye introduced the Yeezy to the world. It was on stage during the Grammys. He wore them one time before Nike repossessed them because it was a prototype. And it was a one-on-one, there was only one of those. And it was sort of that aha moment. You remember that that sort of joke where people would just point at your shoes and say, what are those? Yeah, was like that, was a, that was a viral thing for a while on Vine in particular, but yeah. Yeah, so this was like the epic, what are those, but in a good way, genuinely people curious about what he was wearing on his feet. And when you look at the timeline of the evolution of sneaker history, this is definitely one of the punctuation marks where the hype just started. Like, wow, what is that? How do I get one? And how come there's only 5,000 being made for retail? And so, you know, Supreme mastered this. Many other companies did it before Supreme, but Supreme's most famous for it. They queue up people, they do drops, they seriously undercut the demand by offering such a low supply. And so culturally, back then, it was just sneakerheads. It was the weirdos or sort of like mom's basement type of guys who tons and tons of shoe boxes lined against the wall. It was a counterculture type thing. But then every, every now and then you have a Kanye Grammys moment or you have the pigeon riots in the East Village where the cops show up and it makes the evening news because people are chaining themselves to Jeff Staples store, Reed Space in the East Village, and they're just waiting for it to open so they can buy a $300 pair of sneakers. And so our idea with Applied Arts has always been founded on the premise that value for this generation is changing. Who defines the value? What is valuable? It's completely changing. And the best example I can give you is you're telling me who's going to walk in and buy a $10,000 sports car. Well, I'll tell you one thing. When Zion Williamson is a billionaire, I don't think he's going to want to buy Rembrandt's. That's just my two cents. (laughs) The painter, the paintings. Yeah. I don't think he's going to want to buy Western European oil paintings. I think he's going to spend his money on what he finds valuable, where he ascribes value. Right. And so all of that is in complete mayhem right now. It's in complete fuck, uh, in complete flux. And I love this chaos because, you know, from a real world standpoint, I wouldn't pay a dollar fifty a pound for salmon. 
I hate salmon. I, 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 you got to pay me to eat salmon, right? But <laughs> there's people out there that, you know, they want the best fucking salmon. They want the $10,000 card. And when the right groups, when the right demographics are the ones now controlling more and more wealth, and I'm talking about young kids, tech people, crypto wealthy, athletes getting nine-figure salaries uh, or contracts at 25, whereas, you know, Michael Jordan might have been the only guy who ever made nine figures uh, 20, 30 years ago. You're just seeing sums of money that are more than just rich now. They are culture-changing amounts of money, right? And so when you have that kind of influence, you go after what you want and people follow. And so value and what determines it, who sets it is completely changing. And I love this chaos. So when you found the person, how did you acquire the Yeezys? Was it an auction or did you buy a private party? Private party, just another person. I think it's only been owned, well, now four people, but it was auctioned by Nike for charity and bought by a collector. And I bought it from that collector. And then I sold it to the new current owner through Sotheby's. Forget the acquisition price. That's private for what you acquired it for. But that was, it was a significant amount. You don't buy a culturally game-changing, industry-changing shoe that starts a movement and starts an industry and not have an idea of, like, whatever you paid for that was the highest price probably ever paid for a shoe at that time, right? Probably. I and, thought, yeah, that was my suspicion. That was my suspicion. Yeah. So, if you're if you're making a unicorn purchase, whether it's a shoe or anything else that somebody one of our listeners is listening and thinking about doing, when you're making an investment on something that's never been done before, what is the thought process of like paying more than anybody's ever paid for something in that category ever before? Like there's a significant chance that you lose your ass on this thing, right? And you have to kind of work through that in your brain to say um, I'm willing to make that chance because I, I feel confident enough to what I'm doing. Yeah. And you know, this is what we started talking about too. Sometimes people will make this investment and just sort of say, okay, I've made the purchase. That's it. We thought about it from a 